Well, we are reinstituting a rotation of the elders reading the scriptures, the uh, weekly scriptures that we're going to be going over. So thanks to Steve for doing that this morning. And we chose that text because that introduces one of the key things that Matthew is going to be talking about as we start this series in Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom. But before we talk about that further, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the Lord of all. You have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you have authority over this church. It is your church. And Lord, we want to honor you. I pray that you would be with us this morning. Help us to see as we enter this time of a series in Matthew, Lord, that you would, you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see you, Lord Jesus, as the king that you are, that we would see your glory, that we would see your loveliness, that we would see your humility, that we would see your service. And Lord, that you, as we see you, you would grow our faith, that you would anchor our faith deeper and deeper into who you are. Lord, that we would live our lives as your subjects, total allegiance, total loyalty. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, be with me as I speak, help me to be hopeful, and Spirit, please work in our hearts this morning, all of us. We pray these things and ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are starting what will probably be a couple-year series in the Gospel of Matthew. I plotted it out. Um, and we will see what happens. Um, maybe maybe uh, the rapture will happen before... Um, no. We will... We, um, I don't think... Um, I haven't looked at... Uh, other preachers who have gone through it, but I'm sure they've, they might have exceeded the two-year mark. I was trying to get through it as quickly as possible while still being faithful to the text. But here's what we're doing as we go through Matthew. Matthew is, one way you could characterize it, it is the gospel of the kingdom. That's why I had Steve read that section this morning, because it used that phrase, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world, and then the end will come. You see, the gospel of the kingdom is really a key refrain through the book of Matthew. Matthew 4.23 says this, and he, this is Jesus, went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing many, every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9.35 says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Matthew 24, 14, what Steve just read, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, is unique to Matthew. Uh, the other Gospels don't use it. Uh, and really that phrase means the Gospel about the kingdom. The Gospel about the kingdom. We spent some time the past few weeks going through this idea of kingdom through covenant. The reason we did that, uh, one of the main reasons we did that was to help us 
bring up the whole storyline leading into Matthew. We need to understand the kingdom. The kingdom is the storyline of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And Matthew really sits at the climax of the, the story in a lot of ways, or at least one of the climaxes of the story of Jesus, the king coming. And so we spent a lot of time understanding what is the kingdom? What's the kingdom in the Old Testament? What is, where is God going in history so that we might understand this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, about the kingdom? Whenever you start a new book, whether that's Old Testament or New Testament, you want to get a sense of its background and flow. And so that's one of the things we did by going through kingdom of, through covenant. We got the theological backdrop against which Matthew is set. But we're going to do more of that today. I want to give you a lot more of the background of this book, the understanding of it. I want to give you a sense of the framework, the big picture of the book itself, before we dive into paragraph by paragraph uh, through this book. And just, just by way of instruction, anytime you come to a, uh, a book to study it, ideally, if you could, uh, you'd like to read through it a few times, like the whole book. In fact, for the aspiring men group, the young men's group that we're doing, uh, I've been giving them some homework before the next time we meet to read through Matthew, hopefully a couple times. And the reason we're doing that is because we're studying the, the, the individual details, the individual trees of Matthew, you want to get a sense of what's the whole forest look like. And that often is helpful by reading through the whole book. So if you have time over the, well, really over our whole time through Matthew, it would be good to read through it as a whole, very fast, going through the whole book or even listening through it on an audio book or an audio Bible, if you have that, because it gives you a sense of the flow of the story, it gives you a sense of the whole, before, of the whole book before uh, to, to interpret the pieces in terms of that whole now, we're not going to read through the whole of Matthew this morning. That's not what we're doing. But I do want to give you the background. I do want to give you some key things that you need to know walking into Matthew with me uh, so that we can better understand this book. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk you through some of the background pieces of Matthew. And then at the end, as I, uh, after we've done that, I want to answer the question, why do we need this book as a church? Uh, we believe that God's Word is living and active. We believe that God has written this word and that we, when we read it and when we interpret it and we listen to it, it is God's word speaking to us. Why do we need Matthew as a church? So some background to Matthew and then why do we need it? So first, uh, let's talk about the background of Matthew. And by background, I want to talk about uh, a few things. First, who's the author, right? Uh, who's the author? Well, uh, by early church tradition, the earliest church fathers that we have recorded, unanimously they ascribed it to Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. Now, Matthew never comes right out and says it in his book, hey, I'm Matthew and I'm writing this book, but there is even a hint in Matthew that Matthew wrote it. Um, uh, when the 12 disciples are being listed in chapter 10, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't really describe very many of them, but he, uh, next to Matthew, he says, Matthew, the tax collector, Matthew the tax collector, which is significant because in that day and age, tax collectors uh, were despised people. Maybe not much has changed, um, but uh, the idea of a tax collector in that day and age, in the first century, uh, they were kind of lumped together with prostitutes, with sinners, with robbers. Why is that? 
Well, the way taxes worked, just to give you a little bit of background so we understand our author a little bit more, the way taxes worked, uh, you could have a land tax, you could have a head tax, and those taxes may be given to the Roman government or to uh, Herod. But the kind of tax collector that Matthew was was probably a custom or toll tax uh, collector. So it would be like someone going down to the port over here, right, in a little booth, and as goods and services would come in and they'd move through the country, you would be assessed a tax by the tax collector, and you would have to pay that. Now, the way this worked, though, it was kind of even worse than that because the tax collector would uh, have a bid for the taxes he would bring in uh, at the beginning uh, to pass along to whether it's Herod up in Galilee or whether it's to the Roman government if they were in Judea. So they would have this bid for how much taxes you would have, right? And then the tax collector would have to get that bid. And then if he wanted to make his living or over and above that, he would have to collect more. So this system uh, is foolproof, right? Uh, nothing could possibly go wrong with such a system. Uh, no, this is why the tax collectors, I often, uh, they often uh, collected more than they really needed to, right? And they became wealthy, right? Uh, and they all, uh, after uh, funneling their money to pay their bid to the government, right, they would keep the excess. And so these people were despised. They were not uh, people that were well-esteemed. But Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, one whom Jesus called, and we'll see Matthew's calling later, he was a tax collector, and he's the one that's writing this book. Okay, so that's the author of Matthew. What about the date? Uh, a lot of scholars today think Matthew was written, written very late. I would disagree. Uh, the unanimous early church uh, uh, description of the book was that Matthew was the first gospel written, the first gospel written, which really makes sense uh, because the audience of the first gospel, the audience of Matthew is a Jewish audience. I mean, you just have to read a little bit of it to, to get the Jewish flavor of the book. It starts with a genealogy, which is uh, very Old Testament-ish, right? Uh, and we'll talk about the genealogy next week. But other things as well, Jewish custom and synagogues, as you read through the book, it seems like Matthew is talking of those things as still being active. Uh, for example, uh, Peter and Jesus need to pay a temple tax, a temple tax, and a temple tax wouldn't make any sense, and why Matthew would even reference it in his book, uh, it only makes sense if the temple was still standing, and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, so it makes sense that the temple is probably still standing. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. That kind of assumes that the altar is still there, which is in the temple. So probably this book is actually fairly early. There's other things as well. There's a lot of untranslated Aramaic terms. Aramaic was a, a key language in uh, the first century Palestine. So that the fact that Matthew would just not translate those indicates that he's talking to Jews in Palestine. Even more so, if you look at other New Testament books like James, James has a lot of parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and James is widely regarded as one of the early books written to a Jewish church. The church started out as a Jewish church in Palestine. Even if you were to read Acts, you see that movement. The church starts out as a Jewish church and then gradually swings the other direction and becoming a primarily Gentile church. And Matthew seems to be addressing a Jewish Christian audience. So because of that, it would make sense for it to be fairly early, perhaps even as early in the 30s, the late 30s AD. Remember, Jesus was crucified AD 33. 
could be very, very early, or it could be maybe a little bit later, maybe in the 40s or the 50s AD. But we believe that this is the first gospel that was written of the four gospels. And we've already talked a little bit about the audience. So we've talked about the author. We've talked about the date, right? This is the earliest gospel, at least we believe that. And who's, we've talked a little bit about the audience, Israelites in Palestine, Jews in first century Palestine. Probably Matthew is speaking most directly and most initially to Jewish Christians, but he's also talking to Jews at large, talking to Jews at large. And here's the thing you have to understand by knowing the audience, right? We've seen from the Old Testament in our Kingdom Through Covenant study that there is, in the, the Old Testament scriptures themselves, uh, an anticipation, a longing for the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? The Christ, the, the, the ultimate Davidic king promised by the Davidic covenant. Now, the expectations were confused. You look at some of the, the period in between the Old Testament and New Testament, the Jewish writings, then you, there's kind of a confusion. Is it a priestly Messiah? Is it a kingly Messiah? But regardless, there was kind of a consensus that, yeah, there's a deliverer who needs to come and deliver us from underneath the thumb of the Gentiles, namely, at this time, the, imperial, the, imperial, the empire of Rome. And so that's the uh, sort of uh, thing, the sort of expectations that Jesus walked into. All of these pent-up expectations. We don't know all the details maybe, but we know there's going to be a deliverer. We know we need a deliverer as a nation. We know we need the Messiah. We know God's promised that from the Old Testament. But kind of the universal, uh, even though there was a kind of a different understandings of those expectations, there was kind of a common denominator that it's the Messiah who's going to come and free us politically from this government. He's going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to be a great global kingdom. And that's true, really, in a sense, because what we talked about in kingdom through covenant is that that is God's ultimate kingdom over the world, an earthly kingdom reigned by Messiah, perfectly just, perfectly at rest, perfectly peaceful under the reign of Messiah in the future. And so, in a sense, everyone is seeing that, that physical reality, that tangible reality, and that's what Jesus is walking into. And it's also what the Jews of Matthew's day had an expectation of. And so that forms a huge backdrop for the gospel itself. So we talked about this background of Matthew, the author, the date, the audience. Now let's transition into the purpose of Matthew, the purpose of Matthew. Given that backdrop, why would Matthew need to write a gospel? Well, we could say it like this. Matthew's writing this gospel to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus is king, to give instruction about his kingdom and how to follow the king. Those three aspects, Jesus is king, give instruction about the kingdom, and following, what does it mean to follow the king? It's those three things, right? The Jews have this expectation of what this king is supposed to be like, and what happened when Jesus came is he didn't look an awful lot like that king that they were expecting. So Matthew needs to write this gospel to show Jesus really is the king that was promised. And then along with that, right, there's an expectation of what the kingdom was supposed to look like in the Old Testament, and they got some of those aspects right, but there were other things they missed. And so what, uh, what Matthew needs to do is not only explain that Jesus is king, but to explain, hey, why, if he's the king, why didn't he set up his kingdom like we were expecting? Why, isn't it, why didn't it come? Why didn't that kingdom come? Matthew needs to explain that 
in this gospel. And then along with those two realities, if he's explaining who Jesus is as king and what the kingdom really is supposed to be like, or at least what it's like during this time frame between Jesus' first and second comings, here's the big part that Matthew brings out, then you need, he, he seeks to convince his audience to follow this king. To follow this king. Really, the big idea of Matthew that we're going to take away as we walk through this over and over again, the umbrella big idea for us as a church as we walk through Matthew, it's really the same thing that Matthew was doing for his audience. He wants them to, he wants his audience to swear allegiance to Jesus as king, to seek first Jesus' kingdom, and to follow the king. And that's what we need for ourselves as well. This is what Matthew's going to do, and this is what we need. We need to swear allegiance to Jesus as king, seek first his kingdom, and follow the king. Now, let me just highlight for you that really that is, those three things are Matthew's purpose, just briefly in the gospel itself. So the Jesus is king part. Uh, Matthew portrays that Jesus is king through a lot of different things. He shows that Jesus fulfilled, especially early on in the book, he shows that Jesus fulfilled many prophecies, many patterns uh, that show that Jesus really is the Davidic king. Through his miracles, through the raising of the dead, through the healing of lepers, through all of these amazing things, Matthew shows that Jesus is king. And then not only that, but he shows that Jesus really did claim to be king. You know, some even today would say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. But that is just simply not true. Jesus' own claims are the claim to the throne, the claim to the ultimate Davidic kingdom. Let me show you a couple of those. Matthew 21, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5, shows that Jesus understood who he was and what he was Claiming. Matthew 21, verse 1 says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. And when we know what happens, Jesus rides in on this donkey and colt into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus doesn't directly come out and say, I'm the king, submit to me. But by his mere act of doing this, and in knowledge of this prophecy that Matthew cites, he is in no uncertain terms claiming he is the king. He is the rightful king of Jerusalem. He's the rightful king of the temple. He is the king. Even in his trial leading up to his crucifixion, Matthew 26, when he's talking to the high priest, Matthew 26 63 says this, but Jesus remains silent during this. They're asking him questions. They're bringing these charges against him, but Jesus remains silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And you remember what Christ means. It's the Greek version of Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed king, 
of Israel. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so, which is an acknowledgement. He's saying, yes, I'm, I'm the Christ. I'm the son of God. But I tell you, but he goes further, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what he's doing there is he's referencing Daniel 7. Go ahead and turn to Daniel 7 with me if you want. But when, you, you notice in the gospel, Jesus always calls himself the son of man. And you're like, what is that all about? It's actually once sort of a title of humility and also a title of grandeur because Daniel 7, 13 talks about the son of man. Daniel 7, 13 says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And in the context of Daniel, the son of man language reminds us of Adam. Remember, we talked about kingdom through covenant, that Adam was supposed to be this initial steward king over God's creation, but he failed, and yet there was this promise of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman who would succeed where Adam failed. And we see a picture, a glimpse of that in Daniel 7, that a son of man is going to come. He is going to have the kingdom. And so back in Matthew, when Jesus says, you're going to see that son of man coming, you're going to see me, he's talking about that. And he is in a no uncertain terms claiming, I'm the king. I'm not just any king. I am the ultimate king. King. And so through all those means, through the, the fulfillment of prophecy and pattern, through miracles, through the claims of Jesus himself, Matthew is proving to his audience that, yes, Jesus is the king. And then along with that, he talks about the kingdom. Throughout the whole book, there's language. He, the vocabulary of Matthew is very kingly. There's all the vocabulary of kingdom, rule, authority, those are the sorts of things you want to be on the lookout for because it's helping us understand. Matthew's helping his audience to understand what is the kingdom. And this is very important, right? If, if Jesus is that king and he's going to set up that messianic kingdom, where is it? It didn't happen. If he really was the king, where is it? Where is the glorious messianic kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament? And Matthew is at pains to show, yes, that is going to happen. He affirms that that will happen, that glorious kingdom in the future. And yet he also shows that because of the rejection of the Messiah, the kingdom has been postponed. There was a genuine offer to Israel. There was, it could have happened. You know, um, John the Baptist and Jesus have this language that they use, they, this, this language that the kingdom is at near, it's at hand, it's close. But then his rejection postpones that kingdom. And so Matthew was trying to say, yes, that Messianic kingdom is going to come, but we have to wait longer now because of what has happened with the coming of Jesus. And so after he explains those things, that Jesus is king and that the kingdom, yes, it is that same kingdom, but there's been a postponement, he's at pains to say, regardless of that, you still need to follow the king 
even if it looks foolish. It would look foolish to those first century Jews, a, a crucified Messiah, a suffering Messiah. A, wait, he, if he's really the Messiah, why didn't he bring his kingdom? And why are you following him? So he has to prove and call his audience to follow the king. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33, Jesus himself says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So seek first the kingdom. Prioritize the kingdom above all else. And Jesus himself and his claims and call for discipleship throughout the, the book is it is the calls for discipleship are absolute. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Listen to this. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What, what is Jesus' call? Jesus' call is for discipleship. There's, there's a call of discipleship throughout the whole book. And what is Jesus calling for? He's calling, follow me as the king. Come to me as the king. And this call is absolute. Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 24 He's talking to his disciples, says this, Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, same kind of language as in Matthew 11, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew wants to show Jesus is king. He wants to show the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. But he also wants to show that Jesus' claims to loyalty are absolute absolute. And that's why we say the big idea of Matthew is this, to swear allegiance to Jesus as king, to seek first his kingdom, and to follow the king. So we've seen the background of Matthew, the purpose of Matthew. What about the structure of Matthew? Anytime you come into a, a new book that you're studying or trying to learn, you want to understand what's the layout, what's the framework, what's the blueprint? What's the blueprint of this book? And you want to understand, hey, has the author left me any clues to understand how this book, he put this book together? Uh, the authors of Scripture were not haphazard in how they wrote the Scriptures. They were carried along by the Spirit to write inspired Scripture, but they weren't haphazard. It was well organized. And so is there anything in Matthew that would tell us how it's put together, how it's built, how it's structured? And in fact, there is. And if you get the chance to read through Matthew pretty fast at all one go, or maybe a couple, you will see a key refrain in Matthew that helps us understand its structure. And that key refrain is some version of when Jesus had finished blank. Matthew 7, 30, 28 says this, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, Crowds were astonished at his teaching. Matthew 11.1, 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Matthew 13.53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, 
he went away from there. Matthew 19, verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And then finally, Matthew 26, verse 1, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, and then it goes on. So there's this key refrain through Matthew that indicates there's there's a key division here. And what Matthew is indicating, each one of these refrains that happens in Matthew happens right after Jesus spends a, a, a chapter or more in teaching. There's many of these. They're called discourses. The teaching of Jesus, where just extended time where Jesus is teaching his disciples. The most famous of these is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples. That's this first discourse. The second is in Matthew 10, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples in their mission to Israel. And then after that, you get that refrain. Matthew 13, Matthew bundles together a lot of Jesus' parables, this parables about the kingdom. And then he issues that key refrain. Matthew 18, we get uh, Jesus' instruction for the disciples for the building of the church, the church community. And then there's that refrain. And then finally, in Matthew 23 through 25, we get the blessings and, or the curses on the current Israel leadership and then also the picture of the future kingdom. So there's these five discourses in Matthew that really frame the whole book. They're the teaching of Jesus, and they're important to Matthew because uh, Matthew 26, 1, that final refrain, it says this, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, right? So these sayings are central, they're important for Matthew's purpose. Even in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And you might ask the question, what's the all of the commanding there? And Jesus has a lot of teaching in Matthew, but first and foremost, he's thinking of these concentrated sections, these five discourses of Jesus, kind of to use as a manual for discipleship. How do you make disciples? Well, you need to baptize them and you need to teach them. What do you need to teach them? Well, start out with these five discourses that you have in the book of Matthew. And so those five discourses are going to be important for us. And then what Matthew does, he's got these five discourses, and then what happens if you've got surrounding them narrative. So He's telling a story, right? So Matthew has narrative, then a discourse by Jesus, then a narrative, then a discourse by Jesus, then a narrative, and then a discourse by Jesus. And so you can kind of lump these together. So if I was to give you an overall structure, you can write these down in your bold and try to give you space there. But just to give you an overarching framework of where we're going, first, Matthew deals with the presentation of the king. In chapters 1 through 7, so the first narrative section and then the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, really Matthew's at pains to show here is the king. This is the king. You get a lot of the fulfillment language and the fulfillment of prophecy and the genealogy and all these things to show you this is the king. And here's what the king teaches. So we start with the presentation of the king and then the second main piece you could call the authority of the king, the authority of the king. This runs from chapter 8, basically, through chapter 10. 
Chapter, that first part there, it shows Jesus doing all these miracles, all this uh, healing. It's just a concentrated bam, 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 bam of all of these miracles. And then Jesus commissions his disciples to take uh, that kingdom message to Israel. And so that second movement is the authority of the king. Third movement is the opposition to the king, which runs from chapter 11 basically to almost the end of chapter 13, the opposition to the king. You see what happens in spite of all these miracles and all these proofs that Jesus is king, what you see is is that the leaders, the religious leaders, and the nation as a whole rejecting the king and rejecting the offer of the kingdom which culminates in that third and actually one of the most important discourses in the whole book, the parables, the parables in chapter 13. There's this rejection, which culminates in this instruction about the kingdom in the parables in chapter 13. So we've got the presentation of the king, the authority of the king, the opposition to the king, and then the next movement is withdrawal of the king, withdrawal of the king, which moves from a little bit of chapter 13 all the way through the end of chapter 18. And what happens there is what you see is there's continued, uh, there's continued opposition to Jesus, there's continued opposition to the king, which even leads to him discussing, here's what's going to happen next. Here's me, I'm going to build the church. And then he discusses what that life in the church is going to look like in Matthew 18. And then finally, the final movement, the fifth movement in the book, which is the withdrawal of the king, and then there's finally the rejection of the king, chapter 19 through chapter 28. Jesus comes, he enters the temple, he cleanses the temple, here's teaching, the Jewish leaders reject him utterly, the nation rejects him to the point where he's crucified. And in the middle of that, in his final discourse, Jesus rejects the nation for a time, not ultimately, and also describes what his second coming is going to be like. That's kind of the overall structure of Matthew. Here's the king, the presentation of the king. Here's the authority of the king. Here's the opposition to the king, the withdrawal of the king, and then the rejection of the king. So to give you a sense of the the structure of Matthew, it's those five movements centered in those five discourses. Now, finally, where I want to take you this morning, we, got the ba- we talked about the background of Matthew, the purpose of Matthew, the structure of Matthew. Let's talk about the distinctives of Matthew really briefly. And by distinctives, I mean this. If, if I'm playing tour guide for you for Matthew, I want to point out ahead of time, these are the things you should be on the lookout for. As we read this, as we walk through this, there are certain things that are really important. I've already pointed out a couple of those things for you uh, the, when Jesus had finished these things, but there's more. We've already talked about as we walk through this, you want to be on the lookout for that king, kingdom, uh, authority language. Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew uses this language, kingdom of heaven, over and over and over again. And you, every time you see it, you want to be thinking, oh yeah, this is supposed to instruct us in some fashion about the king or the kingdom. What's also interesting related to the kingdom that you should be on the lookout for is the presence of or the absence of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, like I said, John the Baptist and Jesus, they use this language, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. Jesus says that very same thing. He says it in relation to his miracles. If I'm doing these miracles by the spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's this idea of the kingdom being very close, 
And you want to watch out for that as we go through this. Another thing you want to be on the lookout for as we go through Matthew is fulfillment language. Jesus did these things to fulfill, and then Matthew quotes uh, some sort of Old Testament text or prophecy. But Matthew's not just interested in the Old Testament text itself, although that, that does happen, but he's also interested in patterns. You're going to see this in the first part of the book especially, that Jesus not only fulfills specific prophecy, but he's also fulfilling specific patterns that are based in the Old Testament. Here's another distinctive that you want to see in the book of Matthew, and it's this, discipleship. There's a huge discipleship emphasis in Matthew. We've already talked about that, right? That, that Matthew calls disciples. When you see that language of calling and following, a disciple is a follower and learner of Christ. And so Matthew is at pains to talk about what does discipleship look like? What does following Jesus really look like? And then Jesus himself at the very end talks about our mission as making disciples. So that discipleship emphasis, that discipleship language is a distinctive that you want to pay attention to throughout. Here's another emphasis, another distinctive of Matthew. In Matthew, there's a strong emphasis on rejection, a strong emphasis on rejection. Rejection first and foremost of Jesus, but then a rejection also of his disciples you're going to see Jesus rejected. Even at the, that final episode of him at the cross, the whole nation, his disciples, everyone deserts Jesus. There's no repentant thief at the cross in Matthew. It's just dark, dark rejection of Jesus. And then by extension, Jesus talks about even in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others persecute you and revile you on my sake. And that would make sense in the context that Matthew is writing, right? If, if these are, he's writing to Jewish Christians in first century Palestine who are believing that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he didn't establish the, the kingdom that, they, that all the Jews thought he was going to establish, well, then the, his disciples, the Jewish Christians, would be reviled. They would be rejected just as Jesus was. So there's a strong emphasis on rejection in Matthew. Another distinctive, Gentile inclusion. Uh, you'll see that even next week as we walk through the, the uh, genealogy, the inclusion of Gentiles. Or you can remember the centurion, right, that has a faith that Jesus marvels at. Or even the Canaanite woman later who's not a part of Israel. Or even the Roman centurion at the cross. There's this theme under all of this of Gentile inclusion in the book of Matthew, which feeds into his understanding and discussion of the kingdom. And then finally, as a distinctive of Matthew that you want to watch out for, uh, it's very small, but it comes up in a couple key places, and that is the introduction to the church. The introduction to the church. You're going to see that in Matthew 16 and 18. Matthew is the only gospel that talks directly, most directly, and using the word at least, about the church. And so as we walk through Matthew and we go through that, Everything that Matthew talks about sets the stage for the church and what is going on in the church. Okay, so we've talked about the background of Matthew, the purpose of Matthew, the structure of Matthew, some distinctives that you want to be on the lookout for as we walk through Matthew. In conclusion, let's talk about why do we need this book? Why do we need this book? We are not Jews, although some of us may have Jewish heritage, I don't know, but... Why do we need 
this book, this gospel of the kingdom for FBC? Why do we need this? Why do we need this? Or another way to think about it, as we're going through this, here are my hopes and prayers for us all as we walk through this. So I'm going to walk through several of these. What do I want to see God do for us through this book? Well, first and foremost, I want you, I think we need to see the glories of Jesus, the King, right? Matthew's at pains to show this is the King and this is the glorious one. That's really, as a whole, what the Gospels are designed to do. They're not primarily and first and foremost about what do we need to do, although there's implications for that, but they're trying to get us to rivet our attention on Jesus the King, to see him, to see his glories, to know him. And that's how we're, as Christians, we need that. We need to be anchored in that. We need to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to love Jesus. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter talks about, though you have not seen him, you love him, and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. We need to see Jesus. So you need to be looking for Jesus in this book. You need to see his glory, see his attitude. You need to get to know Jesus through this book. Here's another thing you need from the book of Matthew. You need to understand what Jesus' kingdom is, what it looks like now, and what it will look like in the future. That's what Matthew's trying to do. What does the kingdom look like now? What is it going to look like in the future? He instructs us on that. You know, we, we talk a lot. We throw around the language. Well, I'm doing this for the kingdom. Or I'm building the kingdom. Or I'm doing this or that. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does the kingdom mean? Well, Matthew's going to describe that for us in particular terms. So we need to understand along with Matthew and along with his original audience, what is the kingdom? And then here's the surprising part. This is the part where it would have been a hard for that first century Jewish audience and what one of the things Matthew's at pains to do, we need to see the necessity for Jesus to suffer, die, and be resurrected for the establishment of the kingdom. You can't have the kingdom without the cross. And that's one of the things that Matthew describes in his gospel. And we need to see that again. We can't have the glories of the kingdom without understanding the necessity and the, even the glory as dark and as brutal as it was to see the glorious reality of Jesus suffering, dying, and resurrected for us. Here's another thing you need to see in Matthew as we walk through. Why do we need this book? Well, one of the reasons we need this book is to understand how necessary the Old Testament is to understand the New Testament. How necessary it is to understand the Old Testament before you understand the New Testament. Matthew is repeatedly going back to the Old Testament. And he's not just saying, oh, isn't it nice? Hey, there's kind of a passage there that kind of relates to what's going on in Jesus' life. Isn't that cool? That's not what you're supposed to do when you come across an Old Testament quote in the New Testament. You're supposed to ask, why is Matthew including that quote here? And what he's expecting you to do, go back to the Old Testament, understand it in its context, and then bring that information into the New Testament. You see, the more we understand the Old Testament, the more we're going to understand the New Testament. Why else do we need this book as FBC? We need it to know how to live as Jesus' disciples during this time. We live between two Christmases, Christmas 1 and Christmas 2, two Advents of Jesus. 
How do we live? If Jesus is our king, how do we live? We don't get to live any old way that we think we ought to live. Christianity is an undefined, kind of amorphous, love, peace, and chicken grease kind of religion. It's not that way. It's well-defined. I mean, if you, try to live, if you try to live under any other monarch in, in any other way you want to live, that's not going to go well for you, right? Jesus is the king, and he gets to define for his followers, what does it mean to live as a disciple during this time? And along with that, as a church, we need this book because we need to know how to endure rejection while waiting for Christ's appearing. Now, we've lived in an anomaly in history. You know that, right? And one of the reasons America was founded, right, was for religious freedom. We've enjoyed that for a couple centuries. That is an anomaly in history, in the history of the church. The, the reality, the norm for the Christian church throughout the ages has been rejection and suffering. That's what's expected in Matthew. That's normal. And so we need to listen to Matthew to know how to endure rejection while waiting for Christ's appearing. That's one of the things we need to take away from Matthew. And if I was to give you one thing, that why we need Matthew, one big idea for why we need this as a church, I would say this. Why do we need Matthew? We need Matthew as a church to hear and obey Jesus' call to total allegiance, bar none, for your whole life, despite the rejection of the world and its kingdoms. I like to use that word. We're not very familiar with living in a kingdom, right? We don't live under a monarchy, right? We don't live under a monarch. We don't kind of understand that notion of kingdom and being a citizen of the kingdom very well. So maybe the best way to, to capture that sense is allegiance. Words like allegiance and loyalty. Where does your ultimate allegiance lie? Where does your ultimate loyalty lie? And you ask me, well, how would I know that? How would I know where my ultimate allegiance is? Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions as we think about entering the book of Matthew. Who or what dictates your life? Who or what dictates your life? How do you make decisions in life? That will give you a clue as to where your loyalties are. If you're making a decision based on X, Y, or Z reason, then that X, Y, or Z reason at an ultimate level gives you a clue as to where are your ultimate allegiances. Is it yourself? Is it your family? Is it your country? Is it your job? What is it? What or what or who dictates your life? Where is your fundamental loyalty? When, when everything goes south, when everything is wrong in life, where is your loyalty? What are you coming back down to? At the core of who you are and what you do, where is your ultimate loyalty? Another way to ask it, right? What do your day-to-day -day actions and living show about where your loyalty is? If we are subjects of the king, if we are his disciples, then we have ultimate allegiance and ultimate loyalty to him, and that shows up in our day-to-day -day life. 
And what I'm calling for, what Matthew is calling for, what Jesus is calling for, the reality is that we cannot have Jesus as Savior without having him as our King. That's what Matthew is driving at, that, that you... Here's, here's what Matthew is driving at, that Jesus demands... Jesus demands, he's not asking politely for it, he demands your allegiance, your loyalty, and your whole life live for him. If we, we're honest with ourselves, right, we know our natural self. Our natural inclination, our natural inclination, according to the scriptures, is to live for our, us, to live for ourselves. I mean, that's what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden, right? To establish their own independent kingdom as their own independent kings. And we, when we hear that language of, wait a minute, allegiance, loyalty, I have to submit, right? We, we struggle with that. But the reality of the gospel, the reality of Christ is that submission to Jesus as our king, as our ultimate loyalty, is where our greatest joy lies. Because the king is great. He is gentle and lowly. He gave himself for his people so that we could live for him, which is our greatest joy. So in calling to us, demanding our allegiance and our loyalty to him, he's also calling us to our, our, our greatest joy in living for him. So as we enter Matthew, here's our big idea. And here's the idea I want you to be thinking about as we walk through this book and what we need to do, what, what God needs to do for us, ultimately. We need to swear allegiance to Jesus as king we need to seek first his kingdom, and we need to follow the king. And that's what Matthew is going to do for us as a church. Let's go to before our king in prayer as we enter into this study. Lord Jesus, you are the, you are the king. We said it, we've said it before today, but you, you, are the, you are the king. You are the emperor of the world, the one who will reclaim what is rightfully yours. And we long for that. Lord, we are broken. We, we are naturally rebels against you. We naturally don't want your reign. And we ask your forgiveness for that. We ask your forgiveness for even as Christians, even those who claim your name, just listening to our own voices and our own ideas about what it means to follow you rather than listening to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us to follow you, that you would help us to understand in Matthew what it means to swear allegiance to you, to have you as our ultimate loyalty. And Lord, I pray that as we go through life, whether it's the temptations of the world or whether it's the rejection of the world, Lord, that our ultimate loyalty would be to you and to you alone, O oh Lord. We, we have nothing, we have no strength, we have no desire to submit to you apart from your grace. But that's the glorious reality of the gospel, that you died for your enemies, to make them yours, to make them your subjects, to live for you, which is the glorious reality. Free us from living from ourselves and help us to live for you alone. Lord Jesus, we love you. Do that in this church. Grow your church. You promised in Matthew that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Build your church. Build us deeper into you and build and add more subjects to your kingdom, we ask. We pray these things and ask them in the matchless name of the imperial majesty of Jesus Christ. Amen.